This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For information on how you may obtain an accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree with online courses, please visit us at virtual.rts.edu. We're starting to talk about exactly what a covenant is. We said that we had a provisional sort of definition of covenant theology, and key to that is the idea of a covenant. What is a covenant? And in Palmer Robertson's book, one of the most helpful comments he makes in the entire book, he makes a lot of profoundly helpful comments, but one of the most helpful comes in the first page where he says, asking for a definition of covenant is somewhat like asking for a definition of mother. It's such a broad concept that there are a whole slew of potential definitions. And almost by definition, by narrowing down on one aspect of what a mother is, you probably leave out as much as you include. And it's somewhat the same with covenant. A covenant is a very broad idea. It's hard to pack all of what a covenant is into one definition. Now, there's so much complexity to the idea that it can be a little bit challenging. In fact, there's so much complexity to the idea of covenant in Scripture that a lot of scholars have said it's a foolish and an impossible endeavor to even try to give a definition for covenant. Uh, there's so many different kinds or so many different occurrences, you can't really come up with a cohesive definition for covenant. But as Robertson and others point out, the very fact that covenant refers to all of these instances in the Scriptures is evidence that there is some commonality amongst all of these occurrences of covenant. There's something underlying all of them that enables each of them to be called a covenant. So there has to be some sort of common idea uh, running throughout uh, the, the idea of covenant in the Scripture. So we need to find what that common idea is, but we also need to recognize that you need to be rather fluid with your definition of covenant. You have to realize that it uh, can be pretty broad. Now, some uh, definitions have been given in the past for covenant uh, by some notable men. I'll just read you a couple of them to give you a feel for how men have tried to define covenant in the past. A uh, theologian by the name of Francis Turretin, a uh, very influential theologian, uh, defined it this way. He said, A covenant is a pact and agreement entered into consisting partly in a stipulation of duty and partly in the promise of a reward. It's a pact that involves duty and reward. Uh, Louis Burkhoff, you all are perhaps read Burkhoff in some of your systematics courses, he defines it this way. He says, A covenant is a pact or agreement between two or more parties. There's another common strand there is a pact or agreement. There's some sort of a a relationship there, a, a contractual sort of relationship. In uh, Christ of the Covenants, Palmer Robertson defines a covenant as a bond in blood sovereignly administered. And as you read through chapter 1, I believe it is a Robertson, he fills out what he means by that. Uh, in Horton, the, uh, one, one of our other books, uh, Mike Horton defines covenant this way. He says, a covenant is a relationship of oaths and bonds and involves mutual, though not necessarily equal, commitments. Uh, in our other book, uh, Murray, John Murray defines covenant this way. He says, A divine covenant is a sovereign administration of grace and of promise. Now, this is some, you know, just a couple of 
examples, not that you have to remember any of those. Uh, but you, you see that running throughout these understandings of covenant, there are essentially two key ideas. First of all, a covenant includes a binding obligation. Uh, a covenant binds one party to another. It creates uh, obligations to each other. It creates some sort of a contractual relationship that can have negative connotations, but uh, it creates a, a, a connection between parties that involves duty and reward. And as you read through the scriptures and you get into what the covenants are, you realize that these obligations are very serious obligations. They're matters of life and death. Uh, covenants give life. Transgressing covenants brings death. Uh, the obligations that a covenant brings upon the parties to it are very serious. Um, so that's one aspect of what a covenant is. It's a binding obligation. But a covenant also is a relationship. Uh, it's not just a, a cold sort of contract. Uh, it's uh, even the contractual obligations, if you want to call them that, even those obligations uh, take place within a relationship. The parties in a covenant are related to each other by the covenant. Uh, so a covenant involves both contractual sorts of obligations and a relationship. Now, through the history of covenant theology, various men have emphasized one aspect or the other. Some men have really borne down on the contractual elements of covenant theology, and they've gone a little bit astray. Uh, currently, in uh, a lot of thought today, men overemphasize the relational aspect of covenant, and they completely neglect the contractual element. Uh, to understand really what a covenant is, you need to keep both elements in mind. Uh, it's contractual, but it's also a relationship. They're both elements are uh, combined. In a sense, a, a covenant is a relationship within parameters. A relationship between parties, but it's not just a do-as-you-will sort of relationship. There are parameters placed around the relationship between the two parties. Now, all that's well and good to look at theologians and what they, you know, what definitions they give for covenant, how they understand it. But of course, the, the primary spot you need to look to understand covenant is in the scriptures. Uh, how does the scripture define covenant? And in looking at that, of course, you need to deal with some of the biblical terminology, uh, the biblical vocabulary uh, for covenant. Now, in the Old Testament, covenant is uniformly referred to with the word berit. I'll try my hand at writing on the board. Berit. Uh, berit, as it were, as the Hebrew for covenant, uh, occurs 286 times in the Old Testament. Uh, it's a, a frequently occurring word. Uh, it always refers to what we understand as covenant. There's no real synonym in Hebrew for berit. And because of the importance of berit for the Old Testament understanding of what a covenant is, uh, scholars have put, in, have put a lot of time into trying to derive the etymology of berit, where it came from, exactly what it means linguistically. And basically what they found is that they can't figure it out. Uh, it had a lot of suggestions for where the word came from. Uh, basically what you have to do, as with any word, is you have to look at how it's used. Uh, how is berit used throughout the Old Testament scriptures? And when you look through the Old Testament, you find that berit is used 
in a whole host of different ways. A uh, barit uh, is described as taking uh, place and occurring between a, a lot of different people in a lot of different situations. On the one hand, barit oftentimes describes a relationship between individual men. Uh, Jacob and Laban, for instance, when they had their essentially their agreement to keep each other from stabbing each other in the back, it's referred to as a berit in Genesis 31, verse 44. Uh, when David and Jonathan have their agreement with each other, their pact with each other, it also is referred to as a berit uh, there in 1 Samuel chapter 18. Uh, you could go on and on in Murray. He has a pretty exhaustive list of uh, occurrences of covenants between men. So this idea of berit can refer to a relationship or an agreement between men. It also can refer to a relationship or an agreement between nations, uh, the nation of Israel with another nation. But most importantly, uh, this berit describes the relationship that God establishes with men. Uh, it's used to refer to God's relationship with Noah in chapter in uh, Genesis 6, verse 18. Uh, it's used to speak of God's relationship with Abraham in Genesis 15, 18. It's used of God's relationship with David in Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4, and in other places as well for these men. But just to give you a, at least one place you can uh, reference, uh, Berit is used to refer to God's relationship with these people. It's also used of what you might call lesser relationships between God and people. Uh, for instance, in Numbers 25, when uh, Phineas purges the idolatry at Baal Peor, the scriptures say that God established a berit with Phineas, uh, not a covenant on the same level as covenant with Abraham, uh, but nonetheless a relationship uh, between God and man. Uh, it's even referred, it, berit is even used to refer to the relationship between God and his people corporately. Uh, in Exodus 19 verse 5, uh, the relationship that God uh, perpetuates there with his people Israel is again berit. So you get this idea, and you see that this idea continues to recur through the Old Testament. But when it refers to relationships between God and man, there's a notable difference in those instances than when it refers to relationships between men or between uh, nations. Whenever berit is used to speak of relationships between God and people, those covenants, those berits, are all both sovereignly and graciously administered. On the one hand, uh, these covenants between God and man are sovereignly administered. God determines uh, the obligations of the covenant. We said that a covenant is both a relationship and a contract. Um, God determines the stipulations of the contract. God determines what the obligations are. There's not a negotiating process in striking up the contract. God decides what it is and He tells his people, what the berit is. But it also, these covenants are also graciously administered. Uh, God enters into them freely. Uh, God is not acting out of or under some external compulsion. Uh, God is acting freely to enter into a berit with his people, whereas that's not always necessarily the case in some of the man-to-man -man sorts of berits. But the, one, uh, the occurrences of Berit that refer to God and His people, uh, they share this common characteristic of being both sovereignly and graciously administered. Now, that was just a, a quick sketch of how Berit is used in the Old Testament, but even in that brief sketch you get the idea that there's an extreme amount of diversity. 
you have Jacob and Laban on the one hand, essentially trying to protect each other from the other person, and that's a berit. And then you have God graciously promising life to Abraham, and that's a berit. Uh, there's a wide range of uh, instances in which uh, the, the idea of covenant is found in the Old Testament. But uh, it might be helpful to look at one particular instance. If you have your Bibles, if you look at Joshua chapter 9, uh, some, some theologians make the mistake of taking uh, one particular covenant and making it paradigmatic for all covenants and that ends up leading them astray. There's not really one prototypical covenant, so to speak. Uh, but this is just an example of a covenant that brings out some of, the, uh, some of the characteristics of the idea. In Joshua chapter 9, uh, if you're familiar with the general flow of Joshua, uh, Israel is under Joshua's leadership. They've crossed the Jordan. Uh, they've taken Jericho. They had the uh, ordeal at Ai. They've come through that, and they're just beginning to push again into the land of Canaan and they have this uh, particular experience here with the Gibeonites. Now in verses 1 and 2 of Joshua 9 uh, you see there that the, the leaders of Canaan have heard of Israel's reputation. They know that they are essentially pushing forward at will and the, the leaders of the Canaanite nations recognize that if they're to have any hope of pushing back and resisting the onslaught of the Israelites, they need to band together. And so the Canaanite kings, uh, they come together, uh, they band together to fight Israel with only one exception. In verse 3, you see that the inhabitants of Gibeon, or the town of, of, uh, of Gibeon, they decide not to cast their lot in with the Canaanite kings, but rather they recognize that if God is with Israel, their only hope is to also be with Israel. Uh, their only hope of protection comes in having some sort of protective relationship with the Israelites. And so the men of Gibeon uh, decide to do whatever they possibly can to try to find and establish a covenant with Israel. Um, in verse 6, there in chapter 9, it, says that they, it explicitly says that they go to Israel and they ask for a covenant. Uh, we have come from a far country... Now, therefore, make a covenant, which is berit in the Hebrew, uh, make a covenant with us. Uh, the, the Gibeonites want a covenant. They realize that this will bind them to Israel in a saving sort of way. Now, if you're, again, if you're familiar with the, the flow of the scriptures at this point, uh, back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, God had forbidden Israel from making any agreements or any sort of pacts with the Canaanite nations. Uh, he had told them that if they entered into league with the pagan nations, they would be led into idolatry, they'd be led astray, so they were not to have any sort of confederation with the pagan uh, nations of Canaan. And if you look down at verse 24 of Joshua chapter 9, you see that the Gibeonites recognize that. Uh, they say, Your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses uh, to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing. He re they, they know that they're supposed to be destroyed. They're not supposed to be entering into a covenant with Israel. Uh, but they very deceptively convince the Israelites uh, that they are from a foreign country. 
Uh, they dress themselves in old clothes. Uh, they carry old moldy bread with them. They come acting as if they're worn out from a long journey. They explicitly say they've come from a far country, uh, that they've come to strike a covenant uh, with the Israelites. And Joshua and the leaders of uh, the Israelites believe them. They don't consult the Lord in prayer. They just believe the Gibeonites, that they are actually from a non-Canaanite nation, that they've come a long way. I mean, goodness knows they're, they look worn out. Their bread's moldy. Their shoes are old. They look like they've traveled a long way. So uh, the Israelites, without consulting God, enter into a covenant with the Gibeonites. Uh, the Israelites have been told that they could do that with non-Canaanite nations. They could enter into uh, pacts with non-Canaanite nations. So they did that with the Gibeonites. But then in verses 16 and 17, just three days after they had struck this covenant with the Gibeonites, the Israelites realized that they in fact were Canaanites, uh, that these were not men from some far country, that they were uh, essentially right next door to where the Israelites were at that point. In fact, in verses 16 and 17, um, we see it's only three days later that they find this out, and Gibeon, from uh, what we can tell, is only about 19 miles away. It's not far at all uh, from where the Israelites were. So the Israelites go to Gibeon to confront the Gibeonites. With all that as background, look at verse 18. Uh, chapter, uh, Joshua chapter 9, verse 18. It says this, the, the children of Israel have just gone to Gibeon, and it says, But the children of Israel did not attack them, because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel, and all the congregation complained against the rulers. Then all the rulers said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we have sworn to them. And the ruler said to them, Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. The, the point there is that once this covenant has been made, it cannot be violated. Uh, the, the Israelites don't have the choice of massacring the Gibeonites because they lied to them. They had entered into a covenant. They'd entered into this binding uh, obligation, uh, obligatory relationship with the Gibeonites, and they had to stand by it. Uh, they were not free uh, to punish the Gibeonites for their lies. Uh, in this particular case, the Gibeonites did have some hardships placed on them. They had to be woodcutters and water carriers for the Israelites, but they, their lives were saved by this covenant. There was a relationship that had been established between these two people. It was a relationship within parameters, and it was binding. It wasn't some uh, throwaway notion or relationship that could be set aside when circumstances changed. It was a binding relationship between two parties, and it brought obligations upon each. And that's just uh, one example of uh, a covenant uh, in, the, in the Old Testament. But I think it gives us a pretty clear picture of how a covenant cemented and legally enshrined a relationship. So there are both elements there. There's this relationship between the Gibeonites and the Israelites, but it's not a, a relationship that ebbs and flows by the circumstances of the day. There's uh, parameters placed on the relationship that's formed. And as you go throughout the Old Testament and look at all the occurrences of Berit, Throughout the Old Testament, there's that same common denominator throughout all of them. A, a covenant is a binding relationship. Uh, it's not entirely contractual. It's not entirely relational. Uh, but both components are critical. Uh, both are, are key parts of it. 
So in Hebrew, that's, uh, what, that's the, the terminology and the vocabulary of covenant. That's uh, berit. Uh, the one way in which variety does enter into the Old Testament terminology of covenant is in the verbs that are paired with berit, uh, the way that berit is expressed. Uh, on the one hand, most often you have... You have karat berit. Pardon my poor Hebrew pronunciation. Uh, karat berit is essentially to cut a covenant. Sorry about that. Uh, most often, or with, with a great degree of frequency, uh, berit is paired with karat, to crop berit, to cut a covenant is the terminology that's used. And most often that refers to the inauguration of a covenant, the starting uh, of a covenant. Uh, we'll talk more about the, the background of exactly why they talk about cutting a covenant uh, in a couple of classes. Uh, but when karat berit occurs, which it does with a good bit of frequency, it normally refers to the, the starting of a covenant, uh, the, the solemnizing, you might say, of a covenant. Sometimes you also have the vocabulary of... Can you all see it right way down here? Of hakim berit. Hakim berit, uh, Hakim being the the hifil of kum, and kum being uh, to stand, and the idea of Hakim berit is to make a covenant stand or to make it arise. Um, the idea there of a simple, uh, essentially um, setting back up a covenant. It's, it normally, it's used in instances of a of a covenant renewal. It's not so much forming a new covenant as it is um, reconfirming. There's a good way to put it. Re reconfirming uh, a previously existing covenant. Um, so sometimes the scriptures will refer to someone making a covenant in the English, but what underlies it in the Hebrew is not karat berit, but hakim berit, uh, meaning the... Uh, the re-solemnization, so to speak, of a covenant that already has existed. Uh, that's uh, the second uh, way in which berit normally occurs. Uh, the other, uh, the, on, the only other way that it recur occurs really is is natan berit, which is to give a covenant. Um, in those occurrences, the emphasis is on one party, as it implies, giving the covenant to another. It's more of a, uh, an imp the, the, the emphasis is on the imposition of the covenant. Um, those are the, the chief uses of berit and the, the meanings behind the, uh, the verbs that are normally used w with the, the covenant idea. Are there any questions on that?
it is not, um, berit is not used to, to refer to it explicitly. Good question. We, we, we speak of it as a covenant. Uh, the, the emphasis is on the, the giving of a covenant. Um, whereas this, you know, uh, Karat has the idea of kind of starting out Hakim, the, the re-solemnization of a previously existing one, and Natan generally looks at the fact that one's being bestowed. That it's, the, the emphasis tends to be more on the uh, unilateral sort of aspect of it, that just one person acting, uh, one, one party taking the initiative. And in, in those, you know, in, in some, some, in there's some places you might wonder why we're spending time on those. But there's there's some places in the scriptures where the distinction between the verbs used with berit can be critically important. So we'll, we'll come back to that um, in due course. But just so you have that as background. Now, when, of course, the Old Testament scriptures were translated into Greek in the Septuagint. And when the Old Testament scriptures were translated into the Septuagint, uh, practically every time that berit occurred, it was translated with the Greek word diatheke. Uh, diatheke, um, I said a minute ago that berit occurs 286 times in the Old Testament. And of those 286 times, 282 of them are translated as diatheke in the Septuagint. It's a, a very uniform uh, carryover from one term to the other. Uh, the, the thing that's striking about that is that there is another word in the Greek language... And within, within Greek, suntheke, are you all familiar with this distinction from other classes? Uh, suntheke uh, tends to emphasize contractual relationships. Uh, suntheke in, in Greek is used of uh, contracts and uh, treaties and international treaties, that sort of thing. Uh, the emphasis very much is on a, an agreement between two equal parties. Whereas diatheke, the emphasis in its use throughout the Greek language, is on a one-sided sort of relationship. Uh, in fact, it so lends itself toward a one-sided relationship that diatheke came to also have the meaning of a last will and testament. You know, sort of contract, yes, but it's a contract by one person, essentially. The man dying, or the man living at the time, decides who will inherit his estate. He makes out his last will and testament. The people to whom he's making it out have no say in it. So it's a contractual relationship, but it's a one-sided relationship, whereas a peace treaty between two nations would be a suntheke. So it's striking that when the, the uh, translators of the Septuagint came to translate berit, practically every single time they chose the atheke. Uh, in understanding the Old Testament covenant, the emphasis is on the, uh, the fact that God is initiating the covenant, the, it's a diatheke. It's, it's instituted by God rather than essentially God and Moses or whoever sitting down at a table 
and hashing out an agreement. Uh, the emphasis is more on the, the, the one-sided nature of diatheke. Um, as you move into the New Testament, the preference of or the preference for diatheke continues absolutely. Every occurrence uh, of the covenant idea in the New Testament uh, uses the language of diatheke. Uh, it occurs 33 times in the New Testament, uh, more than half of those times being in the book of Hebrews. Uh, but uh, it's, always, it's always used when covenant is in view. Now, the, given this distinction between, or the, given the fact that there is a distinction within the Greek language between diatheke and suntheke, there's been a great deal of scholarly debate about what exactly diatheke means. Uh, and you'll get some of this in, in Robertson. He deals with it uh, at length at one point. Does diatheke mean last will and testament, or does it mean covenant? Uh, when we speak of God's covenant, or when, when Christ, for instance, when Christ says um, at, uh, the night before, or the night that he was betrayed, when he says, this cup is the new diatheke in my blood, is he saying that this is his last will and testament? Or is he saying that it's a contract, a contractual sort of relationship that he's striking with his people, that he's given to his people? Uh, there can be some uh, implications of you know, the, the, the shades of meaning between diatheke and suntheke. But it seems to me that fairly decisive is the fact that what we just mentioned, that diatheke always is used to translate berit. Uh, there's not some sort of huge difference between berit and diatheke. Uh, it's the word that translates berit. There's the, the commonality of idea. Uh, we need to be careful about placing too big of a distinction between berit and diatheke. They're seen as uh, referring to the same idea. Um, uh, Turretin, I mentioned him uh, in the last hour, uh, Francis Turretin, has a, a helpful way of putting it, it seems to me. He says that diatheke can refer to any uh, covenant or to any agreement, but he says it peculiarly denotes a testamentary disposition with a federal agreement. It's a testamentary disposition with a federal agreement. Now, a testamentary disposition refers to, as you might get from the word testament in there, it refers to the idea of something being given in a one-sided way, like you would in a last will and testament. And disposition refers to essentially dispensing what you have. So a, a, a diatheke is a testamentary disposition in the sense that it's the sovereign unilateral giving of whatever's being involved, but it is a testamentary disposition with a federal agreement. And we'll get back to that in a minute, exactly what's meant by federal, but essentially what he's saying is with a covenantal agreement. So there's both aspects present in a diatheke. There's the one-sided giving of a testament, but there's also the underlying agreement of a covenant. Both ideas kind of run together in the, the language of diatheke. Um, now that, I think, pretty much addresses the, the Greek language of covenant. Are there any questions on the Greek aspect of covenant? 
What was the difference you said? What was the emphasis on that? Oh, yeah, the, the emphasis in Suntheke is on a essentially an agreement between peers almost, more of a, a parity sort of agreement, equal parties. And I just realized I forgot to write the the transliteration here. Right. Uh, every every time that the every time the Old Testament when Berit was translated was used diatheke and in the New Testament diatheke is uniformly used. The 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 only, the only reason that suntheke is of any real importance is that people oftentimes try to take its presence to define diatheke. Essentially, they say since 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 suntheke so clearly and uniformly applies to a two-party relationship. And since diatheke is a different word, it has to be different, which is a, a fallacy. I mean, just because you, you know, if I say I went driving in my car, it doesn't necessarily mean, mean that I went in a Corvette as opposed to a Suburban. I mean, you, just because there's a, a whole host of words that can be used doesn't mean that you're taking definite size by one that you use. That's probably more confusing than it is helpful, isn't it? Basically... The point of what I'm trying to say is that uh, suntheke is important uh, because people try to take its specific meaning to pretty narrowly circumscribe what diatheke means. And I don't think that's a, a legitimate way to handle the language. Um, just because suntheke means an agreement between peers doesn't mean that diatheke can't say anything about a two-way relationship. The, the times that that's spoken of that come in the Old Testament and Berit is used for both of those. Um, we'll get to we'll get to that that that's um, who is said to be making the covenant becomes important here in a couple minutes. So we'll we'll, we'll come back to that. Uh, there's a a very influential covenant theologian who based a lot of his thought on that particular distinction. So we'll, we'll be back to that in a minute, if you'll forgive me not answering more thoroughly. <laughs> um, any other questions? Okay, have, having done the Greek and the Hebrew, there's one more language that we need to look at very quickly to understand covenant, and that is Latin. Now, you might wonder why we care about Latin, since the scriptures aren't written in Latin. Uh, but it actually ends up being important uh, for some elements of uh, covenant theology, so we'll, we'll talk about those quickly. Uh, as you all probably know, it was late in the 4th century, uh, Jerome, St. Jerome translated both the Old and the New Testaments into Latin. Uh, the Vulgate, it became essentially the Bible of Christendom. Uh, for well over a thousand years, it was the Bible that was used. People didn't look to the Greek and the Hebrew, they looked to the Latin and the Vulgate. And because of that, the language that's used in Latin 
uh, becomes pretty important for theology. Now, in generally speaking, the, the second through the fourth centuries, uh, the time that w- where the language would have been shaping what Jerome wrote in the Vulgate, there were in Latin essentially three terms that could be used for covenant, and all th- all three of them were pretty pretty closely related. Now, the first one is foitus. I think that's probably about as transliterated as I can get. I think it's uh, foitus. Uh, in foitus, the main idea is that of a, a compact or a contract. Um, you probably recognize in that the English word federal. Uh, we have a federal government that is a compact amongst the 50 states. It's that sort of idea of you know, a foitus is a, is a compact or an agreement uh, amongst parties. That's also where you get the terminology that we mentioned a while ago of federal theology. Uh, it's sometimes covenant theology is called federal theology from foitus, that it's a, a, the theology of the, of the foitus or of the covenant. Uh, also, in Latin, there's the word pactum. And you probably recognize there the English word pact. And not that you can always tell what a word means by how it came into English, but in this case it uh, applies pretty well. A, a, a pactum uh, has the sense of an agreement uh, between people, uh, very similar to foetus, and not too terribly much distinction. And then finally you have testamentum. Um, and in testamentum, again, it's a, an agreement or a, a compact, but the, the shades of meaning of it tend more toward a sort of a last will and testament, a, a one-way sort of relationship. Uh, that's where we get our uh, way of referring to the Scripture as Old Testament and New Testament. It comes from testamentum. I say they were uh, referred to by Jerome. Um, now, these, these words, these three words in the Latin were used to render both berit out of the Hebrew and diatheke out of the Greek. And they weren't necessarily always used with any regularity of application. You could, generally speaking, it's kind of a mix and match which was used where. Uh, so, whereas in the Old Testament Hebrew, you always had berit, and in the New Testament Greek, you always had diatheke. When you get into the Latin of the Vulgate, there's more of a mishmash of foetus, pactum, and testamentum. Um, each of them having a different, slightly different emphasis on a central idea. Um, any questions on the Latin? Incidentally, if you all have questions along the way, please don't hesitate to raise your hand and, and stop me. Um, Not necessarily. It was a pretty good. Pretty much at the time, the words were so seen as so closely related that my suspicion is that it wasn't a big debate for him what which one to use at any certain point. Um, there's not the 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 main thing. I mean, he, he, I, that's kind of unfair to him. I mean, there is some. 
some more some some degree of regularity, but the the, the the big the big difference is that you have a, a diversity of terms, whereas before in Hebrew you had one word, and in Greek you had one word that was always used. Whereas when you get into Latin, there's three words. You might think that seems fairly unimportant, but we'll get to why it becomes important. It does. It, 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 in fact, this, the, the, the translation into the Latin plays a big part in the historical development of covenant theology, which we'll get to in a minute. You anticipated correctly. Um, so, having gone through the languages quickly, uh, it seems that that uh, really has told us two things about how we need to understand covenant. Now, first of all, our idea of covenant, how we, as we construe covenant in the course, it has to carry the idea of contractual terms. Now, we've mentioned a, a relationship within parameters, and those parameters figure into the definition of covenant. All of these words have the idea of uh, contract, sort of, sort of agreements. But at the same time, our understanding of covenant also does have to carry the idea of relationship. Uh, all of these have a personal dimension. When you look at Berit in the Old Testament, it's not just a contract in the abstract. It's a relationship between people. Uh, the same with Diatheke uh, in the New Testament and the, the Latin and the Vulgate. Uh, there's an emphasis not only on the contractual element, but also on the personal um, element. So it seems to me that a, a suitable definition of covenant, the one from which I tend to work, is that a covenant is a binding relationship between two parties that involves both blessings and obligations. Now you have there the fact that it's a relationship, it's a binding, uh, a binding relationship, but it also has the sort of contractual sorts of elements. You have blessings and obligations, it's a relationship that's binding, it essentially tries to address all of the necessary areas without construing anything too narrowly. And uh, earlier mentioned uh, marriage as a potential instance of covenant. And it seems to me that a marriage is a helpful way uh, to explain covenant. Um, you know, if you can't really assume that people know what you mean by covenant. Uh, just last week I was down in Pineville and a truck drove past me that said, covenant waste disposal system on it. You know, it's not necessarily covenant in the biblical sense. So people might be aware of the word covenant, but you can't just assume that if you say God's covenant that they know what you mean. Um, so to, to help people visualize it a little bit, it seems to me that marriage is a helpful parallel simply because of marriage is both contractual and relational. Uh, certainly there's a key element of relationship in marriage, but it's also, uh, there are also um, contractual sorts of elements as well. You are legally married. There's a, you know, a, an underlying binding commitment to each other uh, that works within the relationship uh, to, to make the whole of what marriage is. So I think marriage can be a helpful way to explain what, what covenant is. Now there's some, some tendencies within uh, covenant theology today that overplay the marriage parallel. 
Uh, we'll get to some of those later on. Uh, but sometimes, uh, particularly within the federal vision, if you all are familiar with the federal vision, uh, they tend to emphasize that, mar- that covenant is like a marriage, that God's marriage with the church. But the, the presentation of marriage that's given is wholly a kind of a, a wishy-washy relationship with no sort of contractual elements. Um, it's more like two folks living together than being married, that sort of a... You've divorced one of the parts of the uh, parallel, and that leaves what you have pretty empty. Um, so we, you need to be careful in using marriage uh, as, a, as an example. But if you know, properly explained, I think it's a good parallel for, for covenant. So that's, that's what a covenant is. And that brings us back to covenant theology. What's covenant theology? We said that covenant theology is the study of God's eternal, unchanging purpose to bring a people to himself through covenantal relationship. Now, we've dealt with the covenantal relationship part, but what about the first part of that uh, definition? What do we mean when we say that God is eternally and unchangeably working through covenant to bring his people to himself? In a sense, that's what we're going to cover over the rest of the semester. Uh, But to give us kind of a, a quick orienting sort of overview of covenant theology uh, would probably be helpful to do uh, at this point. Now, uh, just as a note, um, I keep catching myself almost saying federal theology. Just as a note, covenant theology and federal theology can be uh, used interchangeably. There's not really a a terrible amount of distinction. Um, In past generations, federal theology tended to be preferred. Today, people generally speak of covenant theology. Um, it's my observation that generally if somebody has a negative view of covenant theology, they call it federal theology, and if they like it, they call it covenant theology. That tends to be the way it falls out. So generally in a lot of academic writings, you get federal theology, and in more popular evangelical writing, you get covenant theology. But generally speaking, they refer to the same thing, and I oftentimes will refer to them interchangeably. So if I start saying covenant theology, don't let that, don't let that throw you. But uh, if, if you do have your confession with you, I don't know if you all brought your confession uh, to class today, but if you do have it with you, if you turn to chapter 7, uh, it'll be a good starting point for us as we try to get a quick, before the end of class, overview of covenant theology. Um, chapter 7 of the confession is titled, Of God's Covenant with Man. Uh, So here, the confession is directing its attention to what you might call the proper substance of covenant theology, the the actual covenant itself between God and man. And I think it's it's important to notice how the confession begins its focused discussion of covenant theology, or of the covenant idea. If you look in chapter 7, section 1, I'll just read that for us as a, a short little section. It says... The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto Him as their Creator, yet they could never have any fruition of Him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which He hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Now there the the confession, on the one hand, kind of lends credibility to our definition of covenant. Uh, It's saying that covenant is God reaching out through covenant 
to be the blessedness and the reward of His people. Covenant's God uh, drawing His people to Himself. Uh, but you also notice there in seven one of the confession uh, that the confession grounds our covenant theology in God's voluntary condescension, essentially piercing the creator-creature divide. Um, it speaks of the distance between God and the creature is so great that uh, man never could have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Given the, you could say, ontological distinction, the, the categorical distinction between God as creator and man as creature, uh, given that distinction, divine covenant was necessary for man to be in relationship with God. A covenant, a covenant between God and man isn't required by the moral distinction between a righteous God and a sinful people. It's required by that too. We'll get to that. But at the start, behind that moral necessity, there's also this sort of ontological necessity of covenant between the infinite God, the Creator, and His creation. Uh, that's the sort of the, the starting assumption of covenant theology within the confession. Uh, because of the uh, difference, the distance between God and the creature, as the confession says, because of that distance, uh, God had to condescend through covenant in order to enter into relationship with His people, uh, in order to draw His people to Himself. Um, even, even before there was sin that had to be remedied, uh, covenant still was necessary for God to be in relationship with His people. And now, there's some... You know, don't, don't get me wrong, there's some theologians who try to argue that man's finitude is his big problem. They downplay sin and they say that essentially man's problem is that he isn't God. And that what needs to be overcome is his creatureliness. And that's not the case. Um, sin is man's chief problem. Uh, his finitude is not a problem. That's the way he was created. And he was created as man. He was created a finite being and God pronounced it very good. It's not a problem. But rather it is this sort of divide that God pierces through covenant. Uh, as you move on through redemptive history, sin enters the equation uh, and then things uh, become much worse. But here, even at the outset, uh, there's this distinction between creature and creator uh, that, that makes covenant necessary. Now, uh, as you move into covenant theology uh, proper... Just had, before I keep going, do y'all have classes at 12? Do y'all trying to let y'all out enough time to be somewhere at 12? You can go to 12? Okay. Um, thank you. I didn't want to make y'all late to your next class. Uh, when you get to the actual uh, structure of covenant theology, uh, you find that there are essentially three different, what I'll call, covenantal entities, at least at this point. Um, if you were to lay them out in the order that you encounter them as you move from eternity past to the end of the age, they would go in this order. If you lay them out uh, as, as you would move from um, 
eternity past into the consummation of the age. Uh, first, you would have the covenant of redemption. And the covenant of redemption sometimes is called the council of peace. It's an important alternative. Sometimes it's called the Pactum Salutis out of Latin, but normally you'll get one of these two. Uh, first you have the covenant of redemption, then you have the covenant of works. And then you have the covenant of grace. Um, now when I refer to these as covenantal entities, I'm not trying to smuggle some sort of heterodoxy by you. Um, we'll get to in a minute how there's a good bit of disagreement about the relationship between the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace. Some people would say this is a covenant, some people would say it's not. So we'll get to that in a minute. But so as to not um, take sides on the debate right now, so these are covenantal entities that if you're moving chronologically, so to speak, from eternity past into the consummation, uh, they would go in this order. The covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, the covenant of grace. Now the first one, this covenant of redemption, is a pretemporal, intra-Trinitarian covenant. Uh, it's pretemporal in the sense that it comes before the beginning of time. It comes before the ages were created. And it's intra-Trinitarian in the sense that it is a covenant amongst the three persons of the Godhead. Uh, in the covenant of redemption, uh, God the Father covenants to give the elect to the Son. The Son covenants to redeem the elect uh, through His work. And the Spirit uh, covenants to seal to the elect the redemption, uh, to seal to the elect that God has given the redemption that the Son has purchased. So it's this, you know, before the creation of time, it's this covenant amongst the three persons of the Trinity. Uh, and within that covenant, uh, the elect are both chosen and their redemption is guaranteed within this pretemporal intertrinitarian covenant of redemption. Now, the next covenant uh, within, within this covenant of redemption, the elect are both chosen and their redemption is secured, guaranteed. No, God's elect people. Uh, within, within the covenant of redemption, the Father chooses men and women, actual people, as the elect and covenants to give them to the Son. And the Son covenants to purchase them through His work. And so, if you're going to... It's hard to speak chronologically in these sorts of things, but if you were to look at it as a timeline, by the time you get to this point in the timeline, there is the book of life, so to speak. There's names of the elect, and their redemption is secure by the time you get out of the covenant of redemption, even though the, the worlds haven't been formed. Is that clear? He, he covenants to seal to the elect the redemption that the Son has purchased. 
to, you know, to kind of simplify it, the, the Father gives, the Son purchases, and the Spirit seals. Now, the next covenant to come along as you're moving through time is this covenant of works. Uh, sometimes it's called the covenant of life. Uh, the confession refers to it that way. Uh, sometimes it's called the covenant of creation. Uh, Robertson, in his book, refers to it as the covenant of creation. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about why those different names are used uh, when we deal with the covenant of works specifically. Uh, but it's the covenant essentially between God and Adam when Adam was in his innocence in the garden. Uh, if, you, if, you have, if you want to just, we won't take the time to read it now, uh, but um, in, the conf- in the Confession, chapter 7, section 2, uh, address or describes this covenant of works. Actually, it's really short. I'll just read it. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Um, it's the covenant between God and Adam. The condition of the covenant was that Adam had to render perfect and personal obedience. And the reward of the covenant was that if he did, he and his posterity uh, would inherit eternal life. Um, you know, the, we're familiar with that covenant uh, from the scriptures. Um, God tells Adam a number of things, but the most prominent one uh, being not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam does it. Uh, he breaks the covenant. He incurs the, the curse of the covenant being death. Whereas, had he not sinned uh, by uh, good and necessary inference, as the confession says, we, it's laid out that had he, had he not eaten of the fruit, had he not sinned, uh, he would have enjoyed eternal life. Uh, so there's this covenant of works between God and Adam. The obligation of the covenant is that Adam has to render perfect and personal obedience the reward is that if he does, he inherits eternal life. And it's in this covenant that what we read out of section 1 of chapter 7 of the Confession becomes important. Because here there is no sin. There's no sin yet. There's no need of a mediator between God and man. Uh, there's not uh, the need to deal with man's moral depravity. Uh, man at this point is innocent. But yet still, even though he's in his innocence, covenant is still needed because he's a creature and he's in a relationship with his creator. Uh, there is covenant before their sin. See what I'm getting at? Can you help me think about the distinction between being created without sin, yet not having eternal life yet? Generally, I would put that in the in kind of the category of, of the distinction between a, a infinite creator and a finite creation. Uh, the cre- man as a creature uh, was created, you know, the, confession, the, the catechism says he was created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. I mean, he was um, created good. There's no sin. There's no blemish on him. Uh, but at the same time, he still was a, a finite creation. And to that finite creation, God was promising infinite life. Not that Adam would become God. He wouldn't become infinite, an infinite person, but he would have everlasting life. Um, now, you know, then you can get into questions of, well, um, well, it, it can get to a lot, a lot of murky questions. But I th- essentially, the, 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 the picture that the scriptures give us 
uh, is that in order to, for Adam and man, therefore, to have eternal life, even in their innocence, there had to be obedience to the covenant of works. So you know, what lies behind that, I think it's dangerously speculative to go into, but that, that's the, what the scriptures lay out. That in order for innocent man to have eternal life, he had to render obedience perfect and personal to the covenant of works. You're saying that it gets ambiguous when you try to ask, was he going to forfeit it or was he going to inherit it? So it's speculative to try to narrow it down and find which of those two, but the reality is he was not going to have it if he ate from the tree that day. Yeah, that, that's, uh, there are a lot of areas of debate within the covenant of works, and that's one of them. You know, was... Was Adam essentially a, an eternally living creature uh, that by breaking the covenant of works he forfeited it? And, you know, or was it as if he was on, in a probationary period whereby you know, if he reached the finish line, so to speak, without having sinned, he would be given eternal life that he didn't possess beforehand? And at least in my opinion, the scriptures aren't clear which one is the case. Like I said, I think the, the, what the scriptures give us is that in order for innocent sinless man to have eternal life he had to render covenant uh, obedience to the covenant of works um i've already kept you a minute too long so we'll, we'll stop there and when we come back we'll next week we'll start with the covenant of grace and uh if it's any consolation to you i know when i was taking seminary courses i often found the initial overviews a little bit dry and frustrating but uh we'll, we'll start to get in more into the biblical texts and um we're not always just going to be quoting uh, definitions of things. We're going to start working through some biblical texts and hopefully uh, draw the, the covenants out of the Scriptures. People oftentimes criticize covenant theology, saying it's a man-made construct imposed on the Scriptures. Hopefully we'll disprove that this semester by finding covenants in the Scripture and letting that shape the way we view them. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.